All right, welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Elias Ayala. You do not have to call me Elias. That's my full name. Uh, my friends call me Eli, so uh, just uh, throw that out there. And um, I'm, I always say I'm super excited to, to, to be on because I have such a wonderful guest and we talk about some really interesting stuff. But I am especially um, happy to have uh, with us today Dr. James Anderson from Reformed uh, Theological Seminary. And uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about presuppositional apologetics and transcendental arguments. And so uh, we are going to be in for a doozy. If you're an introductory kind of uh, guy to all of this sort of stuff, uh, don't worry. We will have uh, Dr. Anderson define kind of the basic parameters of how this methodology works. Um, but then um, I did not tell Dr. Anderson this, but we will be going under the assumption that the folks who are listening have some degree of background. Um, uh, in the topic. So please don't um, hesitate if you need to go into some philosophically deep weeds. Uh, most of the people who are listening in um, will be familiar with you and, and the related topics. Um, so with that said, um, just a quick announcement. I know a lot of people were bummed that um, I had uh, scheduled uh, Jeff Durbin to talk about presuppositional apologetics applied to competing religious systems. And that fell through uh, because of some personal issues uh, with, uh, with Jeff. Nothing crazy or serious. Um, but he did reach out to me and we will be rescheduling. And so I'll, I'll let folks know when that is going uh, to happen. We also will be having um, Dr. Gary Habermas on, on the 12th. Uh, so definitely not a presuppositionalist, but uh, as you have heard me before, I do think that we can have very fruitful interaction with people from different apologetic traditions. Um, I think there's great benefit to interacting with each other's materials in, in that regard. So we also have Emilio Ramos, who will be talking about the connection between presuppositionalism and reformed theology and, and how those work together. Why, are why do presuppositionalists tend to be reformed in their theology? We'll explore a little bit of that on May uh, 16th at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern. All right. And I believe, I believe that's it. Oh, we might be having Jason Lyle on as well. Jason Lyle might be coming on or working on that in the background. So uh, with all that being said, let us no longer keep Dr. Anderson away. And he's looking at me. What's this guy talking about? Um, Dr. Anderson, why don't you uh, introduce yourself to folks and to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, uh, Eli, thank you for having me on your on your shows and your experience. I'm really excited. So uh, my background is um, I'm from uh, the UK originally, but I've lived in the United States for um, 11 years now, teaching at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, teaching theology and philosophy, apologetics, ethics. Um, my My PhD thesis was in the area of uh, philosophical theology, specifically the idea of paradoxes in Christian theology. And it was um, somewhat inspired by some comments that Cornelius Van Til made, um, although it wasn't specifically a defense of his views, but, but inspired by them. And uh, yeah, I, I regard myself as a, as a Van Tilian presuppositionalist, although I think that's a, that, that's a broad category and, and people understand that in different ways. I don't know, maybe we'll get into some of the fine uh, distinctions there. Um, and uh, yeah, so I have a, I also have a family, wife, uh, three wonderful children. Uh, and uh, anything else you want to know at this point, or is that enough? Uh, well, but that's good. I did want to ask you real quick, without going into so much details, because, uh, you know, obviously one can go into their, their life story, but um, how did you become a Christian? I was raised in a, in a Christian home. 
by Christian parents um, and uh, basically evangelicals on my on my mother's side um, and really sort of went into my teenage years under under the assumption that I, I was a Christian. I believed all the right things. I did all the right things. I never rebelled. But it really wasn't until I was uh, 15 years old, went to a, a summer camp and basically through a series of providential events was uh, very challenged um, with the words of Christ in Luke 11, 23, where he says, uh, he who is not for me is against me. And I realized, you know, there's a fork in the road here. You, can, you can't be indifferent. And I wasn't sure at that point that I really was for Christ. I, I wasn't sure that, that in a, in a, at a level of personal heart commitment that I, I really had committed myself fully to Christ. And so that was sort of a spiritual crisis moment. And I think that that was a turning point. Now, mm. um, that wasn't the only uh, major spiritual experience that, that I had during my high school years, but I think that was a decisive one. And I, I certainly consider that to be um, something of a, a personal conversion uh, point for me. Yeah. Well, very good. I, I think that's also when we do these kind of uh, discussions that can be highly philosophical and theological, I think it's very important to ground everything in a relationship with Christ, that it's more it's more than just about that intellectual aspect. Not that we separate them, but I like to hear a little bit about folks' backstories because it also explodes the um, the caricature that all Christians are just, you know, ignoramuses. You know, you're a you're a, a fairly intelligent guy, and uh, and and here you are, a believer in Christ, and you engage in some uh, fine scholarship. So I, I think it'd be cool to people for people to kind of hear that about you. So, um, all right, well let's let's jump right in then. Um, Let's throw a bone to the to the people who might uh, be listening in, and they're kind of just like, "Well, I heard about this channel, and I'm interested in this apologetic stuff," um, but they might not be familiar with what presuppositional apologetics is. Now, all they need to do is listen to past episodes um, via the podcast. If you haven't subscribed, uh, stop everything you're doing right now and, and go and subscribe uh, to Revealed Apologetics on um, iTunes and YouTube. So, if you haven't done that already, uh, you are a living demonstration of total depravity. Anyway, um, so. Uh, what would you say is a good summary of presuppositional apologetics to someone who uh, hears that and says, that sounds really complicated and annoying? <laughs> well, presuppositional apologetics is a term for a methodology in apologetics that focuses on presuppositions. That is the, the foundational assumptions that people make. And I think there's a number of, way, number of ways you can unpack presuppositional apologetics, but I, I, I favor uh, unpacking it in terms of worldviews. So right. recognizing that everyone has a worldview, whether they realize it or not, whether they're, they're, they're consciously reflected on it or not, but they have a series of presuppositions, presuppositions about God, presuppositions about reality, about knowledge, about truth, about uh, their own rational uh, faculties, um, about right and wrong. Uh, now, these may be poorly formed presuppositions. They may not be very aware of them, but pe people basically have worldviews. They, they have um, frameworks through which they interpret their experiences. And uh, what presuppositionalism does in effect is says uh, that uh, only one worldview can be right. Okay, so there's only one right way to view the world. There's only one right set of presuppositions through which to rightly experience the world. And the Christian worldview is that 
right one. But of course, that's that's not an argument to simply say the Christian worldview is right one. But there's a methodology which focuses on on an internal critique of worldviews, yeah. and um, you can get a little into the weeds about what form this this uh, internal critique takes. But fundamentally, if, if you're following the sort of Vantillian school of presuppositionalism, the the argument is that uh, a non-Christian worldview cannot make sense of rationality itself. It cannot make sense of our ability to know things, to reason about the world, to have rational beliefs, to have access to truth. So it is a kind of epistemological argument that says, what, what can account for human knowledge in the first place? What can account, what kind of worldview can make sense of our ability to reason and have knowledge? And the Christian theistic worldview, the biblical theistic worldview is, is that worldview. Mm-hmm. And you, you have to follow the argument through. It, it takes it takes a little bit of work to, to identify what are some of the preconditions of human knowledge, of human reason? But um, that's that's basically the argument that the Christian, the Christian worldview can make sense of our ability to reason and argue, and various non-Christian worldviews. We could talk about different different um, varieties of non-Christian worldview cannot account for it. But a presuppositional argument focuses on on a sort of internal epistemological critique of the presuppositions of of an unbeliever. Right, and, and I, I believe you can strip uh, the philosophical language from that and just apply it to everyday situations. So if people are listening to epistemological and all that kind of you know transcendental sort of stuff, uh, there is a way uh, to kind of take this to the streets, as, as Greg Bonson used to say. So uh, we don't always have to talk in these uh, terms, but they are helpful, uh, nonetheless, when we're discussing these issues. Uh, another thing you said, I, which I greatly appreciate, um, because I'm not sure how familiar you are uh, with uh, how familiar you are with how presuppositionalism is usually played out in the popular arena. Um, but you said that stating that the Christian worldview is the, provides the necessary preconditions uh, for intelligibility or what, however you said it is not an argument. <laughs> right. there, there needs to be more heavy lifting and more expanding upon that uh, because popularly speaking, a lot of people will tout that phrase around as though they've made an argument. And of course the unbeliever looks at them like they have, you know, 12 heads. Uh, so I think that's a very important point uh, that you made there. Right. So now uh, folks who usually dive into presuppositionalism um, usually hear names thrown around, you know, I'm a Vantillian or I'm a Framian or I'm a Bonsonian, which a lot of people would say, well, that's pretty much being a Vantillian. And they were like, well, not quite. And then they go back and forth. How would you briefly define the differences between, say, uh, Vantill, or maybe perhaps maybe I'm incorrect here. We may lump Bonson in there unless you think he has a different emphasis there. I mean, Bonson would say, I'm all Vantill here, you know. Uh, what's the difference between a Vantill, Bonson, and, say, someone like Frame and maybe yourself? Yeah. Okay, so uh, the, the moment you step into that, you're, you're committing yourself to a particular interpretation of Van Til. So, you know, Bonson and Frame would interpret Van Til's claims somewhat differently, or they might say, here's, here's what counts as a Van Tilian presuppositionalist. They might define it differently. Sure. I think um, Van Til's approach is actually quite uh, hard to pin down in some areas. But what we can say is that on the one hand, he's, he's a critic of a traditional method that, uh, that adopts a sort of neutral epistemology um, in order to make its case. And he 
he takes the view that you have to argue on the basis of a Christian epistemology. And the centerpiece, I don't think there's any dispute about this, that the centerpiece of Van Til's approach to apologetics is a transcendental argument, which is this presuppositional internal critique that I was talking about earlier. But a transcendental argument seeks to show, um, uh, as Van Til puts it, it, it asks, what are the foundations of the house of human knowledge? And then seeks to show that those foundations are Christian theistic foundations. So that's that's the idea of the transcendental argument. But it seems that Van Til still allowed for uh, historical evidential arguments. But the important thing was that these evidential arguments aren't, aren't um, offered in a presuppositional vacuum. They're offered as part of a broader uh, presuppositional or worldview oriented case. Mm -hmm. um, so, so there, there are nuances, and I think there's a certain reductionist approach to Van Til that I don't think is very helpful. Now, on the Bonsenian side, uh, it's it's transcendental argument or bust, really. So, so um, <laughs> Bonson's approach is to to focus entirely on a transcendental argument for the existence of God, or TAG, as it's commonly. Um, uh, abbreviated. And uh, Bansom had a sort of triad of arguments that he illustrated this with. So the argument from morality, the argument from logic, and the argument from science that seemed to be the, the main focus for Bansom. And Bansom was very critical of any other kind of theistic argument. Um, famously, you know, he, uh, he critiqued um, uh, R.C. Sproul's book on um, uh, classical apologetics and uh, that the ver that's the very book yes so Bonson has a very critical <laughs> okay. critical review of that and the upshot of it is that none of the no theistic arguments are cogent other than the transcendental argument that seems to be his position um and uh, but also there are elements while while Bonson seems to say i'm straight down the line van Tillian, I think it's fair to say there are elements of Van Til's overall thought that you do not find much represented in Barnson. Mm -hmm. One is the element of paradox. So Van Til seems quite open that there are, there are paradoxical elements to the Christian faith, and he outlines a number of these. And you don't hear Barnson saying a lot about that. Uh, it sort of gets kept in the, in the background. He does acknowledge it at a few points. Uh -huh. The other thing is Van Til talks a lot about the, the, the problem of the one and the many and the ontological trinity as the solution to the problem of the one and the many. And this, this seems very important to Van Til as part of this transcendental argument. And again, with Barnson, you don't find that much mentioned or much developed uh, in his big Van Til book. He does have a section on it, but it doesn't seem to feature in his uh, applied apologetics much. So I think there are some elements of Van Til that uh, Barnson wasn't all that enthusiastic about or didn't quite know what to do with. And so they're, they're, they're left somewhat in the background. Yeah. Then you have someone like John Frame, who uh, is more critical of Van Til on some points. So he, he openly distances himself on, from Van Til. And uh, Frame, while he endorses uh, transcendental argumentation, takes the view that um, the transcendental argument isn't a, a sort of self-standing uh, argument, that it needs to be supplemented, as he says, by other kinds of theistic argument. And he also suggests that the transcendental argument isn't actually a distinctive 
kind of of argument and he's so he's more open to other forms of theistic arguments maybe more traditional cosmological um design arguments and he's much more open to uh historical evidential arguments as well now if those are two sort of significant poles are in the world of uh van Thielen apologetics i i sort of locate myself somewhere between the two in that uh i i agree with with Bonson, that the transcendental argument really is a distinctive kind of argument, and it, it should be the centerpiece of our apologetic. Um, but with with frame, I don't think that 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 focus on a transcendental argument excludes other forms of theistic argument uh, or the use of evidential arguments. So, you know, Bonson has this this article um, uh, on on the impropriety of arguing evidentially for the resurrection. So any kind of evidential argument for the resurrection is just, just a bad idea for, for Bonson. Now, um, now, real quick, an argument from an evidential argument, does he mean, uh, well, it seems to be that he would probably mean evidential in the sense that you're adopting that methodology. I mean, he wasn't against using evidence. Well, if you read that article, I, I, think, I think that's right. I think that's really what he's saying, adopting an evidentialist approach. Right. But what he says is, if I remember, that offering evidentially for the for the resurrection is a problem. It's not as though in this article, after having uh, critiqued uh, historical evidentialist approach, he says, now here's the right way to argue, mm -hmm. the right way to use evidentialists. It's as though he's dismissing any kind of evidential argument. Now, I, I would draw, I would certainly draw a distinction between evidentialism as an epistemology and evidential as an argument that, that incorporates evidences. I think you can be, you can argue evidentially without being an evidentialist in the stronger sure. sense. Sure. And probably that was, that was Bonson's view. I mean, after all, on a lot of topics, he does argue uh, evidentially. And when he, when he talks about the, the, the positive um, uh, historical basis for the resurrection, sure. there's evidential um, appeals made there. But there's, there's sort of um, different versions of, of, of Bonson's polemic against traditional apologetics. And sometimes it's hard to, hard to see the more qualified version. Whereas in Frame, it's very clear that what he's offering is a, a more uh, moderate, qualified, um, broader scoped version of Van Tilly and presuppositionalism. Sure. And, and I think a lot of people seem to be very open to Frame's approach because they do they do see the value in the use of these. I mean, surely you don't just argue in one way. Um, and, I, and I mean, even Bonson would make various applications of a transcendental argument. But a lot of people kind of see it as kind of this um, dichotomy. I'm either a presuppositionalist and I can't avail myself of these traditional arguments, or I'm an evidentialist or a classicalist and I, I can't avail. There's this kind of this yeah. back and forth. I mean, obviously there's there's a distinctive, but there's distinctive between them. They're not the same thing. And right. there can be confusion in that regard. So I think it's it's good yeah. to see both sides of the coin with Frame and, and Bonson there. Yeah. I, and I think that the, the real dividing line between a presuppositional approach and a classical approach has to do with the, the, the overarching epistemology that right. you're adopting. Not necessarily specific arguments actually some arguments for example 
um, you know, Bunsen, Bunsen used a moral argument or, or the, a, more, a version of the transcendental argument applied to morality. But, now, if you didn't know anything about the methodological debate between Bunsen and someone like uh, R.C. Sproul or even someone like William Lane Craig, his moral argument sounds a lot like their moral argument. And I think actually they're making the same sort of argument, namely that any kind of moral judgment presupposes moral norms and those moral norms need to be grounded in, a, in an absolute uh, personal source uh, or ground of morality. Sure. So um, it's not so much the, the arguments as what is the, what is the broader epistemology that you're bringing to bear and within which these arguments are being offered. Hmm. Very good. Uh, you you answered sufficiently. That was good. I didn't expect anything less from you. Um, I, something tells me he might know what he's talking about. It is good. It is good stuff. By by the way, if you're not familiar with um, with Dr. Anderson's blog, uh, Analogical Thoughts, you need to get yourself down there and uh, check the blog out. He's got really good articles on transcendental arguments, um, even some Calvinism stuff on there, right? Determinism, compatibilism. Yeah, if you if you go to the blog, it's got one of these tag clouds at the side. Yeah. You know, a lot of WordPress and. Uh, the the tag cloud the size of some of the terms will will, will give you some insight into some of my obsessions and some of the topics that I right and I, I write about through some of your articles and I think I think they're uh, they're fantastic and but for those of you um, who are interested in the whole Calvinism stuff you guys might want to check out my last uh, two discussions with Guillaume Bignon where we addressed a lot of the issues. Um, in that regard. So definitely an interesting topic. Dr. Anderson has a lot of helpful stuff to, to bring to that conversation as well. Um, let's continue to move on um, with uh, transcendental arguments. You said the transcendental arguments are the centerpiece of the presuppositional methodology. Why don't you define for folks, and you, you did so before, but now that we're going to address this specifically here, why don't you define for us what transcendental arguments are and then tell us what the transcendental argument is with regards to the presuppositional tradition? Right. So transcendental arguments per se uh, are not apologetic arguments. And I'm sure many of your um, uh, watchers, listeners are aware that transcendental arguments go at least back to as far as Immanuel Kant. Uh, he certainly coined the term. But a transcendental argument in general is an argument that uh, seeks to expose the preconditions of human knowledge or human uh, rational experience. So what it does is it takes for granted um, the, the possibility of uh, rational thought and uh, intelligible experience and asks what must be the case? What, what, uh, what are the um, ontological preconditions or the metaphysical preconditions, or to put it in simple terms, what must reality be like? What must be ultimately the case in order for human knowledge and reason to be possible. That's what a transcendental argument in general seeks to do. Okay. And then, uh, so what Van Til does is he takes this uh, form of argument and says, this, this is the kind of argument that one has to make if one is going to defend a transcendental God. That is, if you believe in a God who is personal, transcendent, absolute, the source of all things, the uh, the governor of all things, that all reality is ultimately uh, dependent upon God and ordered by God. If that, if you have that grand vision of God, then the only kind of argument that really would expose our absolute dependence on God would be a transcendental argument. In other words, if if you believe in the God of the Bible, 
then you ought to believe that everything, every thought, every rational thought from the most mundane to the most lofty can only be possible because that God exists mm -hmm. and creates us and is sustaining the universe. And that's what a transcendental argument seeks to, seeks to expose, um, not just our dependence on um, you know, physical reality, mm -hmm. but uh, ultimately on the divine reality, on God, God himself. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the basic idea that Van Til's uh, getting at it, it, when he offers this uh, transcendental argument for the existence of God. Hmm. So why don't you explain for us, what is the transcendental argument for the, the for the Christian worldview being the necessary preconditions? Do you argue along that line? Do you make a variation and a tweak in the argument? Are you arguing when you're using the transcendental argument, an argument that demonstrates the existence of the concept of God, that there needs to be something necessary, or do you use it as a package deal that the Christian worldview and all of its essential features are true by the impossibility of the contrary? How would you hash that out? What does the specific argument look like? Well, I think the first clarification that needs to be made, and I, I've made this in a few, few places, is mm -hmm. I don't think there is such a thing as the transcendent, transcendental argument okay. any more than there is the moral argument or the cosmological argument. Rather, what we're talking about is, is a sort of a family of arguments or maybe an argument strategy. So to take the example of cosmological arguments, uh, the cosmological argument is usually defined as a first cause argument. But actually, there are different versions. You get different versions of the cosmological argument. Uh, likewise, a transcendental argument, which seeks to show that the existence of God is a necessary precondition of human knowledge, there are different ways that you can reach that conclusion. And so I've uh, defended in a few places different, different forms of argument in, in one publication, which I co-authored with Greg Welty. Uh, I defend a, an argument from logic. I argue that the laws of logic presuppose the existence of God. Uh, in, in another uh, couple of other articles, um, I've argued that rationality, rationality is a kind of uh, cognitive norm. It requires a normative standard for, for uh, thought. And mm -hmm. if there are rational norms, then there needs to be an ultimate standard of rationality, and that would only come from the mind of, of God. Um, I've used versions of the, the moral argument that moral judgments presuppose um, absolute moral norms, which uh, have to be grounded in an absolute person. Uh, arguments from science. So scientific knowledge presupposes the uniformity of nature. It presupposes the reliability of our cognitive faculties, uh, our, our perceptual faculties. There are various presuppositions that the scientific method depends on that I think uh, need to be accounted for in a biblical theistic worldview. But whether a transcendental argument or how much of the Christian worldview can be proven with a transcendental argument is not only a matter of debate over Van Til's position on this, but also a matter of debate over what in fact one can accomplish with a transcendental argument. Um, I think a transcendental argument can certainly uh, demonstrate the existence of a personal, absolute, transcendent God. Um, I, I'm optimistic that one can, um, uh, one can use a transcendental argument to show that this God must be multi-personal. But that's, that's a bit of a more challenging argument. Whether you could... 
Yeah, I apologize. Well, if, if people are interested in what that might look like, in the previous show, we did uh, have Brent Bosserman on to talk about why uh, God uh, is three in terms of his persons um, and how that is connected to the, uh, the transcendental argument and epistemological questions of predication and oneness and manyness. So you want to perhaps give that one a listen and then come back and listen to this one and see how that might make an important connection. Um, because it is it is something what you just mentioned there. I think when we say that the, the Christian God provides the preconditions for intelligibility and we get into that whole oneness and manyness, that's an extra step that you need to kind of dive in a little more that I think a lot of presuppositionalists don't have um, developed as much or they're not used to talking yeah. about. So I think there is getting back to what you said at the beginning. We need to be careful as presuppositionalists to be OK merely with presuppositional platitudes and sayings. You need to dive into some of these nitty gritty things. And so um, we don't want to make the argument say more than it's actually saying, but we don't want to also minimize. I mean, we want to also present the strength of the argument as well. Yeah. Um, you were going to say something. I cut, I cut in there. No, I'm glad that you did. And I'm actually glad that you had Brandt on your, on your show. Um, mm -hmm. And I would encourage people, I'm going to check that out my, myself. He's certainly got some very interesting and uh, quite um, uh He's he's moved the argument along in a way that uh, that no one has done, and I, I have some certainly some questions about the way he articulates it. But you know that's that's a sort of intramural debate. But that definitely that would be that would be worth um, people checking out to see how that how that argument can be can be developed. But the other point that you made about um, presuppositionalists who perhaps overstate the argument or mm -hmm. overpromise what can be accomplished with a transcendental argument. Um, I've, I've always been one that I've tried not to, to say, promise more for the argument than I personally can defend. If other people think that they can defend more then have at it. Um, but I have been somewhat critical of, of presuppositionists who I think have made, made grand claims and then haven't uh, delivered on those claims with, with actual argument. So what that does mean is I think that there's, there's more, more work to be done by presuppositionalists. I think there's some really exciting work being done. Uh, I think we're seeing more and more young presuppositionalists who are getting very well-trained philosophically and uh, wanting to, to break new ground in terms of making these presuppositional arguments. Mm -hmm. So I think it's an, it's an exciting time, but also we have to recognize that uh, there's, still, there's still work to be done. Mm. Now, uh would you, well, you know, I was going to ask a question. I'll, I'll save it for later because uh, then that might throw us a little off here. Um, okay. So there, there's a criticism um, and it was a criticism thrown at, at Van Til and, and other presuppositionalists about, uh, well, well, where is the actual argument when we're, when we're talking about the transcendental argument, you know, uh, give me the, the premises. Let me see if, if the conclusion follows Is there a way that one can use, say, a transcendental argument in in a deductive fashion, maybe a deductive argument in which one of the premises are defended transcendentally. How might that look like? Yeah, yeah one of the, the frustrating things about Van Til's own writings is that he, he talks quite clearly about this, this transcendental argument and the need for a transcendental argument. And, um, uh, and he sketches out different ways of approaching the question, but that you never find any formalized version of the argument. Whereas you go to someone like Alvin Plantinger, and Alvin Plantinger's works are, you know, literally full of numbered premises and, uh, you know, inferential steps. So there's a number of reasons 
for that difference. And partly it's because Van Til is operating within a, a, generally speaking, a different philosophical tradition. It's a more continental idealist tradition. Um, whereas that this, this need to have um, explicitly stated, formalized, deductive arguments is more a product of the Anglo-American analytic tradition. And so you get someone like, like, like Barnson, for example. So Barnson actually received his philosophical training in the analytic tradition. And so you, you find more of an analytic exposition of the transcendental argument in, in Barnson's work and in, and in others. But you don't find it in Van Til. And so you have to go digging for it and it requires quite a bit of interpretation. Oh, yes. And even then it's, it, it's frustratingly vague at the very points where you would want him to be precise. For example, this one many argument. And Van Til tends to argue by illustration. So he'll, he'll take uh, Hume's epistemology, he'll take Kant, he'll take Plato, you know, and he gives a critique of each, which he takes to be illustrations of the critique of non-Christian thought. Now that's very helpful in itself, but what many of us would like is, well, what have, what's, what's the general argument here? What's, the, what's the, the abstract argument, you know, abstracted from all these historical illustrations? What is the argument itself that, so that we can see it without it being tied to these particular illustrations? Now, in one of my articles I wrote a, a number of years ago on the um, epistemological theistic arguments of Van Til and Plantinger, where I was bringing out some common themes, trying to demonstrate there are some common themes actually in, in Van Til and Plantinger and the way they argue for the existence of God. I tried to formalize a little more some of Van Til's arguments and anyone who's interested can go and pull that uh, article off my, off my website and, and they can see some examples of that. But you don't get that kind of uh, formalization. Um, so where, where do you go to find it? Well, uh, the article that I wrote on the argument for God from logic sets it out in a, a, a transcendental argument or a kind of transcendental argument in a, in a more formal way. Um, now, I should say that, and you're, I'm sure you're aware of this, that there is actually a debate among Vantillians over whether it is possible in principle to formalize the transcendental argument. Some say, well, the transcendental argument isn't a deductive argument. It isn't a, um, certainly isn't an inductive argument, that would be probabilistic, but they'll say that it's not even a deductive argument. There's something special about a transcendental argument. I think that that's based on a confusion about some things that Van Til makes, uh, some comments that Van Til makes about deductive and inductive arguments. Okay. Um, I think if a, if a deductive argument, and this is the technical definition of a deductive argument, a deductive argument is an argument where the conclusion follows necessarily from the premises. The conclusion is entailed by the premises. Mm -hmm. Then I would say a transcendental argument has to be a deductive argument because a transcendental argument is supposed to have a certain conclusion. It's not, it's not a probabilistic argument. If it's not a probabilistic argument, assuming it's an argument at all, and Honestly, I get the impression that some presuppositionists aren't entirely sure whether transcendental argument really is an argument. I'm quite happy to say, yes, it's an argument. That's why it's called a transcendental argument. Um, so it, 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 it must have premises. If, it's, if it really is an argument, and if it can really be articulated, it must have premises, it must have a conclusion, it must have um, uh, inferences from the premises to the conclusions. So I don't see in principle any reason why a transcendental argument cannot be 
formalized uh, as a deductive argument, but that doesn't mean it's just any, any it's an ordinary deductive argument or there's nothing right. special about it. I think what's, more, what's special about a transcendental argument is not the logical form that it takes, but rather the nature of the premises. So what, what it's taking is its starting point, namely the possibility of rational thought. And also there's a, there's a modal dimension to a transcendental argument. It's not just um, uh, an argument about actual human thought, but it's about the very possibility of rational thought. So there's, um, there's a, a, a modal uh, character to a transcendental argument that I think makes it distinctive as well. Now, I heard this argument. I don't know if it was from you or someone else, but someone said, if knowledge is possible, then God exists. Knowledge is possible, therefore God exists. Do you, do you take that as a, a valid argument? And if so, I have another question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've certainly said something very similar to that, and I, I would endorse that argument. Um, I mean, if you, if you state it that way, um, uh, if knowledge is possible, then God exists. Knowledge is possible, therefore God exists. That's a that's a deductive argument right there. I mean, it's a it's a modus ponens argument. Um, there's also this debate about direct and indirect arguments that I think uh, I'm not sure how useful really that debate is. Um, but sure, you, the argument that you just summarized there: if knowledge is possible, then God exists, which is logically equivalent saying if there is no God, then knowledge is impossible. It's just, you know, restating that, that premise in a negative form. Um, and then if knowledge is possible, then it follows that, that God exists. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a simple summary of the transcendental argument or a way of stating the transcendental argument. But the, the issue is how do you defend that conditional premise? Right. How do you defend the claim? that if knowledge is possible, then God exists. And in order to do that, you need to have an analysis of what knowledge is. You need to talk about um, what, what is knowledge and what would be some of the preconditions of knowledge. A precondition is just a condition of possibility. So uh, if knowledge is, the preconditions of knowledge would simply be what, what, what needs to be in place, what needs to be the case in order for knowledge to be possible, even in, in principle, for us. So, so would you say, okay, so if, if knowledge is possible, God exists. Knowledge is possible, therefore God exists. Would you say that one would have to defend the first premise transcendentally along with those side conversations of defining what knowledge is, exploring what the preconditions are, and then show the necessary connection of the existence of God and the possibility of knowledge? Well, that's that's the, the meat of the argument. Dep defending that connection between the existence of God and the possibility of knowledge. You can't just assume that premise because any critic, any atheist or any, any critic of the argument at all is going to say, well, why should I accept that premise in the first place? Why should I accept that the possibility of knowledge entails or implies the existence of God? Give me some reasons to accept that claim. And there are a number of ways that you can approach that. One is um, by talking about the nature of truth. Mm -hmm. Another would have to do with, I think, the, the reliability of our cognitive faculties, that, that we have cognitive faculties that are um, well-aimed towards the acquisition of true, true beliefs. In fact, Plantinga's offered a, an argument along these lines that I think is actually a transcendental argument. It's a kind of transcendental argument, although he doesn't call it that. Um, 
the idea of uh, laws of logic or rules of inference. Um, there are all kinds of preconditions that knowledge has that I think we can ex we could explore and we could uh, argue um, depend some at some level on the existence of God and not just any God but a personal absolute God. Okay. Um, now, okay, I'm trying to think just off the top of my head. So, if knowledge is possible, God exists. Knowledge is possible, therefore God exists. Couldn't you place any concept in that first premise? So, for example, if someone wanted to talk about evidence, you know, is there evidence for the God of the Bible? Couldn't you argue if the concept of evidence is coherent, God exists? The concept of evidence is coherent, therefore God exists. Could yeah. you? Okay, so you can basically right. think it in different ways since God is, we're arguing that he is the transcendental precondition yeah. for coherency in general. Yeah. Well, of course, you could you could, uh, you could swap in anything there. You could swap rabbits in. You could say if rabbits are possible, then God exists. <laughs> but the thing is, you know, <laughs> that'd be an interesting oh, argument, no, a new, new theistic argument, the argument from rabbits okay. uh, or the possibility <laughs> of rabbits. But uh, it, the, the point is that's not a transcendental argument because it has nothing to do with knowledge or, or, or our, our cognitive capacities. So um, what we're arguing as transcendental argument and specifically a theistic transcendental argument is that the existence of God is a precondition of human uh, cognition or human uh, rationality or uh, human knowledge. Um, there are different, there are different uh, dimensions of human uh, rational faculties that you could focus on. connected, though? If you're talking about the concept of evidence, it's a concept. So con con concepts that are coherent presuppose logic and rationality. So couldn't you kind of get there anyway? By exploring the concept itself and then looking for the preconditions for the coherency of that concept? Well, um, I suppose you could argue that in order for us to have concepts, in order, us, in order for us to reason about concepts at all, uh, including the concept of evidence, then sure, you, that, that, would be, that would be a way to go. Another mm -hmm. way to approach it would be evidence, of course, uh, is concerned with truth. So, so evidence in the most general sense is anything that indicates truth. So if I have evidence for some claim, then I have something that indicates the truth of that claim. And it may be strong evidence, it may be weak evidence, but evidence presupposes the, the idea of truth. And I think the idea of truth, that there are truths, is very fertile ground for, pre, for um, transcendental argumentation because, um, and actually this is closely related to the argument from the laws of logic because the, the argument that I make from the laws of logic is actually a particular case of the argument from truth, that if there are truths or true propositions, then um, there has to be, uh, uh, basically these are ultimately uh, divine thoughts. It's a an argument for the existence of God as the grounding of, of, of true propositions. And so if you start talking about evidence, then evidence presupposes the existence of truth. So that would be one way to, to get to the same conclusion. Okay, very good. Um, all right, now, um, I guess my, my next question would be um, the concept of God. When we use the, the argument, for example, let's, let's use because we're on it, if knowledge is possible, God exists. Now, obviously, God has to have content. Otherwise, it's a meaningless word. So when if you were to use that argument, if knowledge is possible, God exists, you, are you specifically trying, are you going to try and argue that the God in that premise is the biblical God 
along with all the trappings of biblical revelation that biblical revelation gives to him his uh oneness and multiplicity and all this other these other attributes so because it can be very we have to be very careful when we say if knowledge is possible uh god exists it's like well is this just a generic argument for a theistic god or is this this concept have content that specifically pertains to the christian god how would you have yeah. that well i think i think some presuppositionalists have trip themselves up a little bit here by okay. insisting that the that the transcendental argument has to prove the existence of the God of the Bible. Now, okay. of course, I don't want any argument that proves a God other than the God of the Bible. In other <laughs> words, it, it proves something that's, in, <laughs> right, that's inconsistent with uh, what the Bible says about God. Okay. But does that mean that the argument has to include in its conclusion every attribute of God that scripture gives us or every every characteristic of God um, does it have to prove that God is both one and many that God is uh, that is God is multi-personal um, if so does it have to further prove that God is tri-personal okay if it has to prove that does it also have to prove that uh these three persons are father son holy spirit uh, does it have to prove that the first person is the begetter of the second person and the first and second persons of god are, are you know uh, the third person proceeds you know how how specific are you going to get about what you're defining as the god of the bible and mm -hmm. does that does that turn into historical claims as well does it does it have to show that um that that this god revealed himself to abraham or that he revealed himself to moses or that he uh that he became incarnate in jesus christ you see that you see the problem there has to be some line there has to be some point at which you say okay there are certain claims that the bible makes about god that are are true that are taught in scripture but that don't have to be part of the conclusion of our transcendental argument or our presuppositional argument wouldn't it I, okay I, i'm thinking in terms of if we're arguing the christian worldview as a package deal wouldn't that incorporate it just in light of the nature of the package that if 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 this is the god that we're proving then everything else that he's revealed which yeah. is included in that is kind of unnecessary it's kind of necessarily connected it seems well in principle, yes, you you want to prove the Christian worldview as a, as a package deal. I don't know if, uh, if I don't think Van Til ever used specifically that, that term. I know Barnson often spoke about sure. the, the Christian worldview, and I'm I'm completely on board with that in the sense that I uh, and I've made this argument in a number of places that we do not want to separate the God of the Bible from the Bible of the God of the Bible. <laughs> right. In other words, when we when we're arguing, to put on a from, or something. I like that. Can you yeah, say? Yeah. As long as I get the proceeds from any <laughs> any merchandise that you sell with that on it. But the, the you know the point is that the Christian worldview isn't just about the existence of God. It's about the existence of God who has revealed Himself specifically in 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 Scripture and in the person of Jesus Christ. And you know there there are other elements to this to this worldview. So when I'm arguing for Christianity, I'm not I'm not just arguing for the existence of God. I'm also arguing for. Sometimes I use the line from Francis Schaeffer. So God is there and God is not silent. Mm. I mean these two clear claims. It's not just that God is not the, that God is there, but that God speaks. This is a God who speaks and speaks specifically. Um, 
through through scripture and of course that traces back to you know prophetic history and um, the words of Christ in particular and so forth but you know part the, the the revelational claim is part of the package and I think there are other parts of the package and I would say certainly the triune nature of God is part of that that package as well um, but again there's a there's a boundary question uh, what what claims are included in the package and what are not so for for example if if scripture says that um that that uh that solomon had so many wives and concubines which it does is that part of the package is that part of the christian worldview when i'm defending the christian worldview do I have to offer some sort of argument that the number of wives Solomon had is actually a precondition of human knowledge? I'm pretty sure I don't have to do that. But rather, there are, there are certain core claims that establish the distinctives of a Christian worldview. One of those core claims is the inspiration of the Bible as God's word. And then once you have the Bible as God's word, of course, all of the specific historical claims of scripture follow from that. But you, at some level, you have to uh, you, you have to argue more generically for the Bible as God's word okay. rather than defending all the specific claims. Yeah, uh, I, I, I think I'm stream. I think I'm tracking with you. I'm trying to think, though, that is when we're talking about the amount of concubines and wives that Solomon had, it seems to be an essential feature of the Christian worldview since it's part of the Bible, which is our source of information. So you see what I'm saying? So if we're defending the God of the Bible, it would seem to include the, the what's included in the package, it seems to me, would be his revelation of which how many wives Solomon had is part of, right? Well, I think maybe there's an ambiguity here in that certainly everything that scripture teaches is, is part of the divine revelation. But I don't think everything it, that scripture teaches is, as it were, definitive of the Christian faith. Otherwise, for example, suppose suppose just for the sake of argument that you're an amillennialist and I'm a postmillennialist, or that you're a credo baptist and I'm a pedo baptist. Okay. If if we make those essential claims of the Christian faith, then one of us is out. One of us is denying an essential claim of the Christian faith. Okay. But we don't. That's not generally how we we view things. We view certain uh, essential claims of the Christian worldview. Then there, you know, we we have a certain um, uh, prioritization. Of, of claims and let's face it there are there are some claims in in scripture that where there are um, textual variants that we know about and we, we don't have uh, a certain answer to specifically um, you know whether whether one textual variant is right or another so you know that, that I take that to be at the sort of the penumbra of, of what we mean by um, Christian Christian revelation or Christian teaching. Mm. All right. This question sounds really, I'm trying to think in terms of uh, how can this question not sound random? I mean, you might get the gist of what I'm saying uh, just to get it because uh, I know there are uh, people who understand the transcendental argument and the necessity of God. Uh, would you say um, that it is impossible for you to be incorrect that the Christian worldview is true? <laughs> right. Well, you understand the angle I'm trying to, I'm trying to yeah. get. This okay. is the, this is the, could you could you be wrong? Um, not not to throw into the issue of like skepticism or anything like that. It's more um, I usually bring this out when I'm trying to see 
how firm the person holds the truth of the Christian worldview as being that necessary precondition. So, for example, someone says, well, I could be wrong. Then I'll say, well, that's interesting that if, if, you're, a, if you're holding that God is the necessary precondition, but then you said it's possible that you could be wrong, it almost seems like more foundational to your worldview than God is actually this, this contingency, this kind of possibility in which can, in a sense, may falsify your commitment to, uh, you know, the Christian God. So uh, yeah. that's, I just, that's why I asked the question, because it gives me a gauge as to where the person stands and in, in how firm this perspective they're, they're holding on to it, or do they have wiggle space and, and have a different understanding as to how that works out? So I hope you understand where I'm coming from. I think I do. Let me, let me give you my take on it, and then you can okay. tell me whether I, I, I completely missed the, the boat <laughs> okay. or not. So my conviction that God is the precondition of human knowledge, and in fact, uh, the precondition of, of everything, every, every element of human experience. Mm -hmm. That is, for me, that's a theologically grounded conviction rather than a philosophically one. In other words, the reason I hold it is not on the basis of a transcendental argument, but actually on the basis of the fact that I'm a Christian. And that I and that I accept the testimony of Scripture about God, uh, and I think that there is a there's a a confusion among some presuppositionists, or maybe not in the presuppositionists themselves, but I think it's perpetuated by some of the claims that presuppositionists have made that our that our knowledge of God comes from the transcendental argument, that our conviction about the existence and attributes of God comes from the transcendental argument itself. I don't think that's the case. I think the transcendental argument is a way of vindicating right. our prior conviction that God exists, which comes from, I, I would suggest with Calvin, the natural knowledge of God that, that comes through natural revelation. You know, I think uh, my starting point is that that everyone everyone knows God through through natural revelation, although sinners su suppress that in, in unrighteousness. But because I'm a Christian, because I believe in God on the basis of both natural revelation and special revelation, I have a certain understanding of who God is or what, what the nature of God and how the creation, including me and my knowledge and my rational capacities, how they depend upon God. Mm. So my, my understanding that everything depends on God actually come, comes out of my prior Christian theology. And what the transcendental argument does is that that's a more philosophical way of vindicating those theological foundations. Okay. What that means is, even if I didn't have a transcendental argument, never mind if I had one and it turned out to be a dud, even if I didn't have a transcendental argument, I'm still warranted in believing that human knowledge and human rationality depends on God because I have an independent knowledge of God through revelation, all right? So I think, I think it's important to get that distinction straight, that how we know that God exists is different from how we show or demonstrate or vindicate that knowledge of God by way of a presuppositional 
argument. So if someone says to me, could I, could I be wrong about the transcendental argument? I'm quite comfortable saying, yeah, I could be wrong. Um, of course, that doesn't mean a whole lot uh, unless someone actually gives me a reason to think I'm wrong, says, look, here's a flaw in your argument. Okay, that, now we've got something to talk about. But simply, someone just asking in the abstract, you know, could, you be, could, you be, could your formulation, uh, could your argument from logic, could it have a flaw in it? Sure. Right. I mean, I'm fallible. Uh, maybe, maybe I did make a mistake in the argument, but unless someone's going to point it out, we don't have much further to talk about. But even if, even if I had no argument, I, I think I'm still warranted in believing that there, there is an argument. In principle, there is an argument that would demonstrate the, uh, the absolute necessity of God as the foundation of all human thought and reason. Hmm. Well, I did have a question. Uh, a question I wanted to ask on, on the spot, and I forgot it. But just know, folks, that it was a really good question. And <laughs> and my argument, my, my answer to your question would have been fantastic. I know, it probably would have. Uh, okay, okay, no, I think I remember it. Okay, so you said you could be wrong about the transcendental argument. Now, that could be taken in a couple of ways. You could mean that I could be wrong in the formulation of a particular transcendental argument, or you could be wrong about transcendental argumentation in general. Now, um, I don't know if that's what you meant, but I was thinking right away now, are you, do you think that the Bible as God's revelation provides for us kind of the ingredients to arguing this way, such that if you were to admit that you could be wrong about transcendental arguments in general as a way of demonstrating God, that that actually would affect your conviction that the Bible actually teaches that this is precisely the way we should be talking about God, namely as, you know, in his light, we see light and all the verses... Okay usually use uh, yeah. in relation to that. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I, I think so. So I would say that what scripture does is it gives us uh, gives us the, the raw materials for a transcendental argument because it, it tells us things about uh, the nature of God, about the nature of creation. Um, in, in a sense, um, the, the Bible tees up a transcendental argument. So it puts, it, you know, it says, it says, this is, this is the kind of God who has revealed himself, and that means that everything depends on God, including your ability to think a, at all. So in him we live and move and have our, our being, or uh, from him and through him and to him are all things. I mean, these are, these are sweeping statements about the absolute dependence of all of creation on, on God. But then... Of course, you have you have scriptures like in 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 thy light we see light, or, or um, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of knowledge. Um, these these are not statements of a transcendental argument, but they are mandates for a transcendental argument. Okay, I think. All right, all right. Thank you for that. Okay, so now I'm going to go into the portion of our of our discussion here to see if you could address some common objections. Uh, to uh, presuppositionalism in general. And then we'll take some questions uh, from the live chat and then we'll wrap things up as I am already appreciative of the fact that you have given me at least 58 minutes of your time. Uh, we'll try to squeeze a little bit uh, more juice out of this lemon, but uh, let's see. Um, if we... <laughs> I'm not sure that's the metaphor you want to so. use, but. <laughs> oh my goodness. All right. So um, let's let's deal with some common objections. So, so what would you say to someone uh, that says that presuppositionalism is basically uh, circular and that it basically reduces to postmodernism. Every worldview starts with a circle, and so you can't escape that circularity. And so it's really just 
your worldview versus the other person's worldview. And there's really no way to get out of that. How would you respond to someone who says something like that? I'm going to say, yes, there is a circularity in the argument, sure. but it's not a fallacious circularity. I think once, once someone grasps the nature of a transcendental argument. What a transcendental argument seeks to do is to expose the preconditions of rational thought. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, if you're going to argue in the first place, you're assuming that there is rational thought. So there's a sense in which a transcendental argument assumes the very things that it's seeking to expose. It, it assumes the preconditions of rational argument and it has to, but the point is that even the critic has to as well. So it, this is this is one of the things we're we're um, we're asking: um, what are the what are the foundations of human uh, of the house of human knowledge? To use that Vantillian metaphor, we, we want to ask: what are the foundations of the house of human knowledge? Well, of course, we're standing in that house the whole time, and you can't avoid that. Uh, so there is. When you're depending on the foundations while you're arguing for the foundations. Right. There's nothing. There's nothing fallacious about that. Sometimes you know critics of presuppositionalism um, caricature the argument as as though we're arguing um, God exists, therefore God exists, or the the Bible is God's word uh, and it says it's God's word, therefore it is God's word. Um, these are these are caricatures. And and if someone says that that's the sort of circularity that presuppositionalism engages in, then at that point, I'm starting to think that they're not a serious person. They haven't really taken the time to, to, to look into this. So um, the distinction really here is that the circularity of a transcendental argument comes not from the premises, but from the presuppositions. That is to say, when we're arguing for the existence of God transcendent, transcendentally, we are presupposing the existence of God, but we're not taking the existence of God as a premise. There's a difference between a presupposition of an argument and a premise of the argument. Mm. And if you think, if you go back to the um, summary of the transcendental argument you gave earlier, so if, if knowledge is possible, then God exists. Knowledge is possible, therefore God exists. There's nothing, there's nothing fallaciously circular about that argument at all. Sure. But if the argument is sound, then of course we've been presupposing God the whole time because we've been assuming knowledge is possible. Um, but that's that's just the nature of a transcendental argument. There's going to be a presuppositional circularity there. And, and if in that argument, if if knowledge is possible, God exists. Knowledge is possible, therefore God exists. We're uh, we're presupposing God the entire time. But the argument is just merely to show the person yeah. that look, we needed God before we even argued. <laughs> you right. know, okay, it's right. just the person. It's, yeah, it's 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 as though. Um, the way I the way I sometimes put it is in 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 a in an apologetic encounter there has to be common ground right there has to be certain things that you and the other person agree upon sure. uh, in order to get started so we can assume that there's some common ground and we've got a maybe a, an unbeliever and a believer a Christian and a non-Christian debating and what we're asking is who owns that common ground or what makes that common ground possible. Sure. There's this misconception that presuppositionists don't believe in common ground. That's not the case. It's not that we deny common ground. It's that we deny that the common ground is neutral ground, that it's that it's philosophically or religiously neutral common ground. What we are arguing as presuppositionists is, see this common ground that we've been standing on the whole time? That's Christian ground. And uh, you may not have acknowledged it, but uh, that's that's 
that's where it comes from. It's grounded in 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 the existence of of the God of the Bible, mm. and uh, we're depending on it. We're standing on it the whole time. All the argument seeks to do is to expose what has been going on the whole time, to expose the foundations of the house, or you know what, whatever metaphor you want to use for that foundation that we're treating as as common ground. Mm. Uh, one last question, and then we'll we'll move on to the the folks who are listening in. Um, well, what's up with this common objection that that I often hear that presuppositionalists confuse ontology with epistemology? I'm sure you're familiar with this. Mm -hmm. um, that what, what, on the one hand, we'll say God is the necessary precondition for intelligibility, and then we'll kind of go back and forth to belief in God is the necessary precondition. And people point out, well, there seems to be a a, a confusion or a conflation between ontology and epistemology. Have you heard this before? I have. I have. I've heard it from certain um, Thomist critique, uh, critics of Van Til. And I'm, I'm not entirely clear on what the criticism is, to be honest. If, if the criticism is that uh, we're not clear on whether it's the existence of God or belief in the existence of God that's the precondition, I'm quite willing to be clear about that. And I will say, no, it is the existence of God. Okay. I, I, I don't think you need to argue that belief in God is a presupposition of human knowledge. Or maybe you can make that argument, but I don't think that that's fundamentally what Van Til was getting at. We, you know, when he talks about when he when he talks about the ontological trinity as mm -hmm. being um, the foundation of knowledge or the, the, the necessity of the ontological trinity, he's not saying that people need to believe in the doctrine of the trinity in order to know anything. What he's saying is that there has to be, as a matter of ontological fact, a triune God in order for us to have intelligible knowledge of, of the universe. So it is an ontological claim, but it's an ontological claim underlying, uh, undergirding a, an epistemological uh, claim. So the transcendental argument is an epistemological argument because it's arguing from certain epistemological assumptions, namely that knowledge is possible or that rational argument is possible, or however you want to frame the argument. Mm -hmm. But it's arguing for ontological preconditions of epistemological claims or epistemological, um, well, it's not so much epistemological as epistemic. We would say epistemic operations. So things, our, our ability to know, to have uh, orderly experiences, to reason, these are what we call epistemic operations that, that we have. And we're asking what are the ontological preconditions? What, what must exist? How must reality be ultimately mm. in order for these things to be possible? So I, I don't think, I think once you understand the nature of a transcendental argument, you recognize that there's, there's an epistemology there and there's an ontology there as well. And I don't think the two are being, uh, being confused. Okay. All right. Well, let's move along quickly because I, again, <laughs> <laughs> I do apologize. Uh, I, I don't want to take too much of your time. If you don't mind, uh, I'd love to run through some questions here. I usually run my guests through the gauntlet right before I let them go. Um, and this is kind of the part of the show that people really like to uh, to listen to because, you know, um, a lot of these questions may or may not be directly related to what we're talking about. If you don't know it, just you can wave your hand or move on. Or if if the if the signal suddenly cuts out and the screen goes blank, uh, you'll know that a question came up that I didn't know how to answer. So Imagine just, you just like ran away. You were like, oh, I can't answer. You just like, ran off. That'd be 
pretty interesting. All I'm right. very, very happy to admit when I don't know the answer to a question. Okay, well, good. That That's very helpful. All right, so here's a question. Um, uh, do you think Eastern Orthodox, like uh, the, uh, do you think the Eastern Orthodox like the transcendental argument a lot? I've heard uh, it's actually Jay Dyer using it a lot. I don't know if you're familiar with Jay Dyer, but he is uh, an Orthodox um, Christian, and he is known on the internet for using transcendental arguments. So can someone from uh, an orthodox tradition use it in a consistent way? Or do you think this is specifically the, the property of reformed Christians? What do you think? Okay, um, so this might be a good example of a, a question to which I, I don't know the answer and I'm not, I'm not sure I should try and bluff my way through it. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not familiar with, uh, is it Jay Dyer? Jay Dyer, yeah. Okay, so I, I apologize to him for not being familiar with his material. And uh, if he's Eastern Orthodox, then obviously we've, we've got our theological differences. Um, I, I will say this in general terms, that I think uh, there's a reason why presuppositionalism has grown out of Reformed theology, because presuppositionalism is grounded in certain convictions about the sovereignty of God, the aseity of God, that is the self-existence of God and uh, the absolute independence of God. And uh, I think certain convictions about divine revelation and the self-attesting nature of scripture. So there's, there's a theological package out of which presuppositionalism has been developed. Mm. And I, I, I don't think that you can just transplant it into another theological context and and expect everything to be fine as, as though you can you know dig a tree out of one particular kind of soil and just transplant it and expect it to grow in a quite different kind of soil mm. and i i do not profess to be uh an expert in eastern orthodox theology mm. but i i do know that um uh eastern orthodox folk um do take issue with uh, sort of Augustinian understanding of divine sovereignty and human freedom. <laughs> What's that? They're usually not a big, big fans of Augustine. No, right. Not, not, a, not fans of Augustine. Um, and so there are, there are some significant theological and philosophical differences. And one I think has to do with the nature of, of free will. Again, um, you know, Eastern Orthodox have have their own sort of set of terminology and, and it's, it's not always easy to interpret Eastern Orthodox claims with the vocabulary of Western theology and of analytic philosophy as well. But I think that there's more of a commitment to what we would call libertarian free will. Okay. And that puts certain things beyond the control of God. Uh, God would not then be what Van Til calls the all conditioner the one who is sovereignly directing all things according to the counsel of his will. But I think that that actually is a presupposition of human knowledge. I think unless there is one divine mind that is sovereignly ordering all things according to his, his rationality and his purposes, then you have elements of uh, ultimately chaos, ultimately randomness, inexplicable, events in the universe. And uh, I, I think that that's, that's epistemologically problematic. So that's just a, you know, a, a general observation that I think that there is a deep connection between reformed theology and uh, presuppositional epistemology. But, you know, it requires quite a bit of unpacking. Sure, sure, sure. And we're going to be focusing more on that uh, in uh, when we have Emilio Ramos on. We'll talk a little bit about the relationship there. Uh, mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Uh, here's a question. Uh, was Jesus a presuppositionalist? Of course. 
Was he a Venter? He was a Calvinist and uh, a Peter Baptist. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's on one level, it's a, it's a reasonable question to sure. ask. Um, you know, Jesus, of course, believed everything that is true, at least as to his divine nature. So, you know, if, if presuppositionalism is, is the right apologetic methodology, then then Jesus in his divinity, of course, knew that. So, you know, but in a sense, that's a trivial question. You know, you could you could ask, uh, was was Jesus a, a believer in in the in general relativity or something like that? You know, it's it's a, as a as a as an entailment of his omniscience. Well, yes, of course, again, assuming that general relativity is a true theory um you had you having jason lyle on um i'm, I'm in the works i'm talking with his, yeah. his yeah, you can you get him down to that yeah. expertise as i understand it um but you know the more serious question is does does jesus himself um teach uh, a, a presuppositional methodology um no i mean that's part of christ's mission was was not to uh, you know specifically lay down how we're going to do apologetics. Right. Um, you have to look at the whole council of of scripture for a number of theological and philosophical issues. And since since of course Christ is the ultimate author of all of scripture, the scripture scripture is the word of Christ. Then we can take scripture as being the testimony of of Jesus Himself. Mm-hmm. So if if presuppositionalism as a methodology maybe isn't taught explicitly in scripture, but if there are if there are certain theological and epistemological principles in scripture from which presuppositionalism follows, then yes, indirectly, Jesus is, is teaching us to be presuppositionalists. But in a sense, it reduces to the question of, does the Bible teach presuppositionalism? Okay, and that's probably a more natural way to frame the question. All right, thank you for that. Uh, Nathan says, Eli, you always have collared shirts. You got a problem with that? I like collared shirts. No, we'll get rid of that. Uh, uh, yeah, I can't dispute it. I can't dispute it. I when I'm when I'm relaxing at home, I do wear other clothes, but for whatever reason, uh, yeah. Well, for all we know, you might be in your pajamas. I mean, everything's on the computer now, so all you need. Is- <laughs> I'm fully clothed right now. I can. Right. I can well, that's that. you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's a question. How would you characterize recent Westminster Seminary Vantillians, uh, folks like Tipton and Oliphant? How would you categorize them, I guess, with regards to their closeness of uh, to Vantillian yeah. thought or, you know, differences there? In a sense, I'm reluctant to answer that because I think people should be allowed to speak for themselves. So, you know, if you if rather than have me characterize what Scott Oliphant says, go read Scott's books, okay? I mean, he's laid out his views in in covenantal apologetics and various other books. So, you know, no more than I would want someone to go to to Scott and say, characterize Anderson's presuppositionalism, you know? There's something a little artificial uh, about that. Um, I do think that probably there's, there's a certain emphasis among uh, our friends at Westminster that uh, places more of an emphasis on on biblical theology in the sense of you know Gerhardus Voss and uh, that approach. They they want to ground presuppositionalism more in the categories of of biblical theology, and so that's partly why the the terminology of covenantal apologetics has been adopted. Mm-hmm. I, I've got no beef with that. I, I I don't argue with that. I think it's more a matter of of emphasis than anything else. Um, 
generally they want to emphasize more the biblical theological foundations of presuppositionalism. I'm um, partly because that's not my area of expertise. I'm 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 trained in philosophical theology, so I tend to approach it from from that and and. With, it's different perspectives on on one methodology, right. um, and of course, presuppositionalists often vary in the kind of arguments that they offer in practice. So, you know, we talked earlier about Barnson, and Barnson's got his sort of triad of arguments that he he would use in debates from logic, science, and morality, and uh, you know, that's just that was just partly his style, partly a consequence of his particular philosophical training, and so you're going to find variations among presuppositionalists in practice, the sort of arguments that they focus on, the vocabulary they use, the points they emphasize. But that doesn't mean that there's some deep division, sure. uh, that there's some sort of uh, you know big partisan debate um, within the Van Til camp. Of course, there are, I think there are some substantive uh, disagreements, maybe about the details of the transcendental argument and so forth. Um, but I think that the the differences are often overstated. Sure, I agree. And, and I think part of the thing that I wanted to do with this channel is to show, as I mentioned before we started, the broad application of it. And some people might be really good at applying a transcendental argument in a specific way using specific vocabulary, and others might be good at doing it in a different way. So I think yeah. we should consider all of the yeah. different varieties with which uh, we can use this uh, methodology. Yeah. And people uh, are going to play to their play to their strengths. Of course, of they course. are. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that, that's partly what accounts for uh, the differences. You know, you could line up six people who claim to be presuppositionalists and say, well, he uses this kind of argument, he uses that kind of argument. Well, it may be just that they're, they're applying the presuppositional method to their particular area of expertise. Sure. And, and not everyone's a Bonson who placed great emphasis on the epistemological issues. I mean, you might have a different bent uh, with regards to how, you, how that all works out. Um, here is um, some uh, Pine Creek. He is our... I guess I can't call him local because I don't know where he lives, but he is an atheist, agnostic, skeptic, uh, skeptic sort of guy. And so he's uh, made a comment here. If you need God to justify morality, then you can't use the observation of morality to justify God without being circular. How would you speak to that? Or would you agree with it? Or No, I don't. It looks like a non sequitur to me. Um, if you need God to justify morality. Well, that's that's ambiguous in itself. Mm -hmm. OK, um, does does someone need to believe in God in order to have moral knowledge? Uh, no, I don't think so. Even though I think everyone has a suppressed knowledge of God, I, I don't think that your knowledge of moral truths is inferred as such from your knowledge of God. So I, I think moral beliefs are what epistemologists call properly basic beliefs. Okay, So I think they're known by intuition. But then the deeper question is, why are there moral truths and how do we have moral knowledge? Hmm. I, don't, I don't need to claim that an atheist needs to believe in God to, to, to know the difference, to know that murder is wrong or that stealing is wrong or that lying is wrong. Hmm. Um, I think that we, we have a properly basic belief in certain fundamental moral, moral norms or standards. Hmm. But... The, the, what the presuppositionalist is arguing is how do, you, how do you account for those moral truths and our knowledge of those moral truths? There's actually different kinds of moral argument. One kind of moral argument is an argument from 
moral realism itself. So why, why are there objective moral truths? Mm. Another argument is more epistemological. It has to do with how do we know moral truths? Because even if there are moral truths, there's still a question of how, how do we have access to them? How would, how would we know them? And that's where a presuppositionalist is going to argue that a, that a, a the, theistic worldview, uh, and not just any theistic worldview, I think certain conception of God is important here, um, is, is necessary if, in order for us to account for the existence of moral truths in the first place, or moral facts or moral norms, and for our knowledge of those norms. So uh, basically, I, I don't, I don't accept the, the premise of the objection here. I don't think that there's a kind of circularity. It's not as though uh, you're arguing from, uh, from morality to God and then arguing from God to morality in, a, in some sort of circle. You're not. You're starting with the assumption that we have moral knowledge. That's the, that's the premise of the argument, that we know that there are certain moral truths. Okay. And then you're arguing from that to the existence of God as a presupposition or as a, as a ontological precondition of those moral truths. Hmm. But the, it's, it's to go back to that common ground illustration that I talked about earlier. This common ground, I think, with most people on certain moral truths, of course, you get, you know, you get the moral skeptics, you get the moral nihilists who want to bite the bullet and say, no, nothing's right or wrong. There is no moral knowledge. It's all, a, it's all an illusion. And uh, you have to deal with that situation in a somewhat different way. But for those who are willing to grant that there are at least some objective moral truths, that's the common ground we're standing on. And again, we're asking, so how do we make sense of that common ground? What, which worldview can account for that common ground? There's nothing, there's, there's nothing fallacious or circular about that at all. He goes on to say, if you need a transcendental God to justify transcendental logic, then you can't use transcendental logic to justify a transcendental God without being circular. Again, I don't. I don't even understand what this what this conditional means in the first place. If you need a transcendental God to justify transcendental logic, well, I do. The laws of logic again are are are, are known. They're properly basic beliefs. So the law of non-contradiction, law of excluded middle. Um, we don't deduce those or infer those from the existence of God. We know them to be the case. But now we can ask, uh, ask given that we know that there are laws of logic. What must be the case in order for there to be laws of logic? That's a, that's a transcendental argument. So I, I don't even know what it means to a transcendental God to justify transcendental logic. If, if the claim there is that uh, God must exist in order for there to be logic, well, that, that's the argument. That's not the premise of the argument. That's, that's what we're arguing for in the argument. We're starting with the assumption that there are laws of logic, which I think I would hope an atheist would grant in the first place that there are laws of logic. And then we're arguing that if there are laws of logic, then there must be a, 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 a medical, um, a metaphysical foundation for those laws of logic, namely the existence of God. And you know, that, that's what I argue in my paper. But there's no, there's no circularity there. Let me put it this way. So I've written this, argue, this paper, co-authored co this paper on uh, arguing from God from the laws of logic. It's been criticized by... Um, by professional philosophers. Uh, there have been a, a number of critiques, um, some by Christian philosophers, some by atheist philosophers, and uh, Greg Welty and I are in the process of responding to these criticisms. One criticism that no one has offered, no professional philosopher has offered, is that it's a viciously circular argument in the way that this objection is, is being posed now. 
So that's I'm not that's not to say it's not that that in itself shows it's not a good objection, but it's rather suspicious that no no professional philosopher, academic philosopher who's who's critiqued our argument has pointed that out. I All think right. it's we can. Last, uh, last. Uh, I don't want uh, the, these questions to dominate the questions. There's just a couple more. I'm skipping over so that we don't. Uh, we'll give you a break. <laughs> um, but here's one uh, last question here, and I think it's a. I think it's a good one um, that uh, would be good to clarify. He says, uh, "What would James say to someone who says the existence of the universe is the precondition of logic, morality, uniformity, knowledge, etc.?" I guess. I guess when we say that God is the necessary precondition, many skeptics think, "Well, you could just replace that with anything." Why, why is it not the case that you can't use the universe for yeah. the, uh, the preconditions here? Well, of course, it depends what you mean by the universe. Okay, so, um, you know, is the universe being defined as, as, as the physical cosmos, the space-time uh, continuum? Um, if that's, that's what we mean by universe, that the, the, the physical universe, uh, that is a precondition, then I'm going to say, well, the problem is that the universe defined that way doesn't have the kind of properties or qualities that could account for, for logic, morality, and uniformity. For example, uh, moral norms, I think, can only be grounded in a person. It's only a person who can issue moral imperatives. And even, even atheists, some atheists, recognize that moral imperatives have to come from a personal source. Hello. You're holding to some sort of. Oh, sorry, uh, you kind of you kind of froze for two seconds. You're good. Okay, we're back. Can I? Yep, you're good. You're good. Yeah, unless you're unless you're defining the universe in maybe sort of pantheistic terms, um, and then that you know there are other critiques that would have to be offered there. But um, I, the the argument for take the argument for logic, for example. So the argument from logic argues that if there are laws of logic then these laws of logic have to ultimately be understood as divine thoughts. They are thoughts that exist necessarily. Okay. Now, the universe is not a thinking thing. The universe contains thinking things, but the universe it does not have a mind. The universe doesn't have a necessarily existent mind. So the universe doesn't have the kind of features or qualities that would make it uh, uh, the ground that, that would enable it to ground things like laws of logic, necessary truths, moral norms. Um, and of course, the universe can't account for its own uniformity. That, that really would be viciously circular to say that the universe is what accounts for its own uniformity. No, the, the uniformity of the universe is something that itself needs to be accounted for. Mm -hmm. So in short, um, the universe uh, just isn't up to the job. <laughs> All right. Um, I do apologize for some people. I, I, I don't know how much, if, if you realize this, Dr. Anderson, but you're a pretty popular guy. So there are a lot of questions, but obviously you cannot answer all of them. So I'm looking forward to telling my daughters that when I get home. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, three more questions and then we'll wrap things up to give you uh, a little rest there. And I don't want to scare him away so that he never comes back on again. What's, what's up with that? You know, assuming that you might eh, a little wink there. I know you're a busy guy. So we do. Sure. Yeah, I'll come back. Oh, awesome. Okay, so Simon uh, asked a question. Do you move from tag to the gospel and urge unbelievers to repent and believe in Jesus? Uh, is tag kind of, uh, you know, how do, how do you make that transition? Because obviously that's where we want to we want to get to. Yeah, I do. And of course, we have to. Um, uh, tag itself, I think, is a powerful argument. 
to to refute a broad sweep of unbelieving worldviews. Mm. But tag itself doesn't get you to the gospel, and uh, it doesn't get you to the the, the point of presenting Christ as Lord and, and Savior. Although there's a sense in which the Lordship of Christ, the, the absolute Lordship of Christ is one of the motivating factors for the transcendental argument. Mm -hmm. But um, the best the best way I could answer this question in brief is to say that if you if you buy my book, um, why should I believe in Christianity? <laughs> I want people to know the resources out there, so don't, there's no shame here. Yeah, yeah, available in all good bookstores. Um, <laughs> that that will lay out exactly how I make the argument right up to the point of the gospel. You know, mm -hmm. I begin. Basically, what I do in that book is I, I lay out a summary of the Christian worldview because I want to argue for Christianity as a package deal. I, I don't want to take elements of the Christian worldview and try to argue for them uh, in, in isolation from other parts. So I, I, I lay out what is what is a Christian worldview, and then I, I give arguments in support of um the, the existence of God, which is one component of this worldview, um, God having revealed himself uh, in a, a verbal uh, divine revelation in scripture, and then move to the revelation in Christ as the son of God and the resurrection of Christ. Um, and of course, you have to do this sequentially, because even if you're arguing for Christianity as a, as a, as a package, you can't say everything at once. So you have to say certain things in a certain order. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I focus on different elements, but basically putting the pieces together. It's like having a jigsaw puzzle and saying, okay, here's one piece, here's another piece, here's another piece. But I've already told you what the final picture is going to be when all these pieces are in, are in place. And then at the end of this, once you've, once you've made a case for, uh, for Scripture as the Word of God, for Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, who who died for our sins, was buried, and rose again on the third day, as as Scripture testifies. Then you you have the gospel message presented there, mm -hmm. and the obvious question is: are, are you going to trust in this Jesus or not? Are you going to repent of your rebellion against God and embrace the man who claimed to be the only way to the Father, the way, the truth, and the life? And so, actually, my book ends with. Uh, a gospel appeal, an appeal to to trusting in Christ, and and I would say if your apologetic doesn't go there, does it, it's not an apologetic. It's not a Christian apologetic at all, unless it ends up with a with a with a gospel uh, invitation. Mm. Very good. All right. Next question. I often encounter Kantianism. How do I respond to the claim that it is irrelevant whether I hold to this or that worldview in order to account for experience? I want to know where this person lives where they they encounter kantianism uh, it's there i i've encountered it, it yeah they're in the internet roaming around yeah <laughs> i mean it depends uh it depends what, what version of kantianism you're, you're talking about um uh i i mean kant himself would not have agreed that it doesn't matter what worldview you hold to in order to count for experience because kant himself offers a transcendental argument where he thinks a certain worldview, now it's his own sort of quirky um, transcendental idealism, that's his worldview that he thinks is vindicated by his transcendental argument. So that's not even a Kantian claim, that it doesn't matter what worldview you hold in order to account for, it, for experience. But um, the, the problem with this claim is that it's not actually engaging with the argument. So if, if I argue 
for example, that the laws of logic imply the existence of God or presuppose the existence of God. And someone says to me, well, you know, it doesn't matter what worldview I hold in order to account for the laws of logic. My response is, you, you, you haven't engaged with the argument. You've basically just blown off the argument. I've given you an argument that a particular worldview needs to be presupposed or is, is objectively presupposed by, by the laws of logic or by laws of morality or by scientific method or whatever. Um, don't just blow it off and say, uh, I, don't need that, I don't need that worldview to account for it. I've just given you a reason why you do. So either you're going to engage with that argument to say why that, where that argument goes wrong or you're, or you're not. And that's the test of whether someone's a serious thinker or not. Are they going to, if you offer an argument in defense of a particular worldview, are they going to engage with that worldview or are they going to basically change the subject? Because that's often what's going on. People just want to want to change the subject or, or blow up, you know, uh, a smoke of dust to try and distract from the actual arguments that are being offered. Hmm. Very good. Um, next question here. If tag is sound, does it in principle refute all doubt about the fact that God exists? I have a couple issues with that question, but uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I think it. Um, I, I think I understand what the what the uh, what the question is getting at. I mean, a few qualifications. As I said earlier, I don't think there's just one version of of tag. So I think there are different ways of formulating the argument that focus on different aspects of our of our rational capacities. But if there if there if there are is a sound version of tag, then is it going to remove any individual person's doubt? Not necessarily because they may not grasp the argument, or they may have they may have uh, doubts about um, the premises of the argument or the inferences. Because the thing is, you can have a you can have a sound argument. If an argument is sound, all that means is that its premises are true, and its conclusion follows from its premises. Its conclusion is necessitated by its premises. So an argument can be objectively sound, and it may actually convince no one. Um, because because of deficiencies in the person, not necessarily you know mental deficiencies. There could be all kinds of deficiencies. They may not may not grasp the argument. Um, they may be confused about its premises and so forth. So if since since doubt is a is a is a psychological phenomenon, a sound tag in itself is not going to remove all doubt. That doesn't mean that it's worthless because a sound argument is a very valuable thing. Uh, and uh, and the more you the more you explain the argument, hopefully the more you can help a person see that it is a good argument, that it is a sound argument. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not going to be sufficient for that. But also, I want to go back to the distinction I made earlier: that tag itself is not the basis for our certainty about the existence of God. No one needs a transcendental argument to know with certainty that God exists. That comes through uh, natural revelation. Um, and it doesn't come through a, a philosophical argument. The philosophical argument is a means of vindicating the claims of the knowledge of God. Right. Okay. Um, now, I did say three. Can I squeeze in one more? I've lost count. So you, you could have just gone ahead anyway. And I wouldn't have any questions here. I, I feel bad that, uh, I mean, they're not so many, but I didn't want to over overburden uh, you there. Let's do one more. One more. Okay. Uh, this one's interesting one. This one's a, a fun one here. Uh, someone's saying here, I am someone who self-reports. I don't think I know that God exists. Can you give an analysis of what it is you think I am doing by that statement? Am I lying? Yeah. 
myself deluded? I actually, that's a very, a very good question because I think a lot of uh, people say, you know, the presupposition says, you know, that God exists, you know, you're just suppressing. Biblically, that's yeah. true. We believe that there, there's a sense in which that's happening. Uh, but what happens when the person says, I don't know God exists? What do you call me a liar? What's up with that? Yeah. Um, no, it doesn't necessarily entail that the person is, is, is lying. I mean, I think there is a category of, uh, of a cognitive suppression or self-deception. And, you know, self-deception doesn't necessarily imply that there's something um, uh, immoral per se going on uh, or that someone is necessarily deluded. But like you, Eli, I'm, I, I follow the teaching of scriptures. That's my starting point. So if scripture says that uh, the existence of God is, is clear from the creation and that at some level everyone knows that God exists, even though they suppress it. That's going to be my, my starting point for interpreting these claims. Now, I think there is some room about this interpretation here. It, 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 I think it, it may be consistent with Romans 1 to say that some people through their suppression have actually uh, lost a knowledge of God, or at least they've lost a consciousness of the knowledge of God. So. Um, there, there are different ways, perhaps, of finessing out the, the claims in Romans 1 about the natural knowledge of God and exactly what the consequences of this suppression are. But if someone self-reports and says, I, I, don't, I don't think I know that God exists, I don't think I even believe that, I don't think they're lying to me. I don't say, uh, no, really, you do. Why don't you just fess up? <laughs> but rather, I, what I'm going to try and show them is, well, okay, maybe maybe that's how things appear to you right now. That's that's your current understanding of your cognitive state. But I'm going to try and argue that a lot of the things that they take for granted actually presuppose the existence of God. So even if they don't have a, a conscious awareness of some knowledge of God, it doesn't mean that at some deeper level there, there isn't some sort of theistic assumptions or theistic presuppositions uh, at work in their in their overall um, cognitive cognitive system. So, lying, no. Um, self deluded, I don't think is the right way to say it either, because um, you know self delusion carries um, connotations of mental illness. I don't think that's the, that's the characterization there. But you know, I think there's a there's a reasonable category of of, of self deception or su suppression. Let me give you an example of this. So so there was there was a philosopher who for a while um, argued that he did not exist. That actually the statement "I exist" uh, was was false, and that 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 our 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 belief in our own existence is an illusion. Was he was he crazy? No, I mean, he wasn't pathologically, you know, deranged. Um, was, was he lying? Did he not actually believe it? No, I think he was serious about what he was saying. Um, but somehow he had convinced himself by argumentation that, that he, he didn't exist, uh, that, that as, as a person, as a, as a first person subject of knowledge, he didn't actually exist, that this was illusory. So there's something clearly very complex going on here and actually that that was a that was a uh, a consequence of his intelligence but he was using his intelligence to reach a conclusion that i think many of us would say is it's absurd and goes against common sense hmm. so it's not a question of intelligence it's not a question of um whether someone is just being fraudulent or something like that i think some people really can co co convince themselves 
of things that deep down they know they know better. But of course, you know, this is this is my interpretation of an atheist claims from a Christian perspective. And and atheists have their interpretations of my claims. They think I'm deluded. They think they think I've got I'm, uh, you know, wish fulfillment or whatever. They've got their epistemology and their psychological psychological models for explaining my theistic belief. Fine. They have a right to do that. That's not actually going to settle the debate. The debate is, does God exist? And are there good arguments for the existence of God? So, so I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about the particular psychological status of, of, of atheists, unless someone brings it up, like here, and asks me and answers that question. I'm more interested in, are there, are there actually good reasons for believing that atheists are, are dependent on the existence of God, whether they acknowledge it or not? Mm-hmm. Well, very good. Thank you so much. That was really, really good. And, and I'm, I'm sure people are fine. And people are still sending in questions. Sorry, folks. Um, if you really want to know more about what uh, Dr. Anderson has to say, um, you can go and bother him and email him a bunch of questions. Or No, no. <laughs> or you can check out his, uh, his blog at Analogical Thoughts, right? Is that what it's called? Or Analogical Thoughts, yeah. If you okay. you you'll probably find it. Okay, and you got a, a lot of uh, stuff there, and on YouTube, I think you have some stuff on sermon audio as well, where you go into some apologetic stuff. Uh, I, don't, I don't put stuff on YouTube, but maybe other people take my stuff. Yeah, on YouTube. I have stuff on there. Um, so uh, thank you so much for that. I hope uh, that you guys have found this helpful. Um, real quick, Dr. Anderson, um, if someone was like, "Hey, this is really interesting discussion. I really um, am interested in presuppositional apologetics." What are uh, three books you would suggest uh, people to just to dive into as an introduction, uh, in your opinion? Three books on presuppositional apologetics. Right. Someone's like, I'm interested. Where, where can I go to learn more about this stuff? Okay. You're putting me on the spot because if I give you three, of course, that's going to leave out certain ones. People are going to say, when are you? When are you? Okay. So, okay. I'll, 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 I'll say here are three. And I, and I won't name one of my own books, okay? Uh, so I, I will exclude my own books. But give us the but, title. What's the, what's the title you were thinking of your own book? Well, there's, there's uh, why should I believe Christianity is my sort of uh, application of a, of a presuppositional methodology to the, to the question of why we should believe in Christian worldview. Uh, but leaving that aside, I mean, that's not, that's not really a book about presuppositionalism per se. So if, if someone wants to, to get a good handle on, on presuppositional apologetics, the, the three books I would recommend, first of all, I would say read Cornelius Van Til's book, Christian Apologetics. Um, it's, it's one of the shorter ones, and it doesn't go into a lot of issues that Van Til goes into in other places. But I think it's probably the most accessible. And certainly anyone who asks, where should I start with Van Til? I say start with his Christian apologetics. It's, it's, I think it's quite well self-contained and digestible. So, so there's that. Um, secondly, um, Greg Barnson's book, Van Til's Apologetic, I think is really indispensable. And... In a sense, you get a twofer there because it's half of it is just quotations from Van Til and then the commentary from Barnson. So, so Barnson's Van Til's apologetic is is a superb resource. And then thirdly, I recommend uh, John Frame's book Apologetics. It was originally called Apologetics: The Glory of God. It's now been renamed Apologetics: A Justification of Christian Belief. It's a revised edition, and. Um, I think that will offer people a different perspective on presuppositionalism that sort of balances out some of the things that you find in, in, in Barnson's work. So John Frame's textbook on, on apologetics, I think, would, would round out the reading if you, if you pick those three. 
All right. Well, thank you very much for all of that. Uh, once again, guys, on uh, the 12th, I'm going to be having uh, Dr. Gary Habermas. And on the 16th, I'll be having Emilio Ramos to discuss the connection of presuppositional apologetics with Reformed theology. Thank you so much, Dr. Anderson, for joining us. This is uh, going to be very useful for folks. And thank you so much for your time. Hopefully we can get you on uh, again in the future. Sounds good. Thanks, Eli. All right. Take care, everyone. Thank you. And God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer um, on one of our podcast episodes, please feel free to send in your question uh, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com.